to you all. I just uh, mentioned that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper as part of our time of worship this morning. And then as we have been doing in recent weeks, after we've shared the Lord's Supper, we will be leaving through these doors and we'll sing together in the car park. And there will be song sheets. So please just remember to pick one of those up as you leave. And the Sunday School will rejoin us while we're in the car park, in case you're wondering about that. And then we are meeting again at 6 p.m. this evening, continuing in Matthew's Gospel, and I hope that you can join us for that. And just to mention also a thank you from Alan and Elsie Boynton for all the cards, the prayers, and the calls during Elsie's illness and as she now continues to recover at home. So thank you. 
uh, all of you on behalf of Alan and Elsie and please do continue to pray for her as she recovers. At the beginning and at the end of the book of Revelation, we find these words. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Our first song gives praise to the one who is Almighty over our beginning, over our eternal future, and over everything in between. He is Lord of our dawning. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we praise you because you are, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And because of who you are, you are worthy of all our praise, all our devotion, and all our love. We worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We worship you as the one who is not only almighty, but also the one who wipes away our tears and refreshes our souls. Many of us have come this morning in need of your refreshment. We think particularly of Sue Bradley, who's not here, but we pray for her with this difficult news she's received last week about her health. We pray for Clive Luke as he continues to mourn the death of his father after the funeral on Friday. And we pray for Pat Davies as she prepares for her sister's funeral this Tuesday. So even as we bring you our worship, we ask you to lift us up. Deliver us from evil. Put your new song in our mouths again. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We're going to have a reading now from Luke chapter 12, where Jesus gives a warning that we are not to think life is all about the good things God gives us. Jesus says, life is all about God. He must be our treasure. Luke chapter 12, and we're going to read from verse 13. The parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God.
this point, the Sunday school will be moving next door, and the transition class will also be going with Steve. we did a survey this morning of everyone's favorite Old Testament book, I wonder how many of us would say Deuteronomy. I mention that because I think we could make a good case that Jesus Christ would say Deuteronomy is his favorite book of the Old Testament. He quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book. And when he was going through one of the most significant ordeals of his life, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, during that ordeal, Jesus quoted three passages of Scripture to combat Satan's temptation. All three of them came from the book of Deuteronomy. And two of them came from the chapter we're going to look at this morning. And then when Jesus was asked which commandment was most important, he again quoted from the chapter we're going to look at this morning. So it's not too much of a stretch to suggest that not only was Deuteronomy Jesus' favorite book, but our passage this morning was his favorite part of his favorite book. And I hope that's motivation enough for us to turn to that passage and see why Jesus considered it so significant. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. It deals with the greatest commandment, and it's presented to us as the greatest privilege. In chapter 5, Moses has just re-presented the Ten Commandments. Then he retold the encounter with God that accompanied the commandments. And now Moses moves from retelling that past event to challenge this current generation of Israelites about their future. As they sit camped on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to cross over into the promised land, Moses wants them to set the right priority for their lives. So let's read chapter 6. Moses says, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord our God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve Him only and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and His anger will burn against you and He will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees He has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, throwing out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. This is God's word. And there are three sections to it. First, Moses speaks about our reasonable response to God's greatness. Then he deals with an offensive response to God's blessing. And finally, he shows the importance of remembering the love that saves us. First of all, we hear about total love, our reasonable response to God's greatness. We said before the way this book works is, after re-presenting the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, the rest of the book is really an application of those Ten Commandments. It's like a sermon series on those ten foundational words. 
And you can see that here in verse 1, where Moses says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. The Ten Commandments were like a bullet point outline of God's instruction for his people. And now Moses is going to flesh out those bullet points. And he's going to do that so Israel will obey and be blessed. Verses 2 and 3 repeat what we've heard so often already in this book. Obedience to God's instruction is good for human beings. His instruction is the way of life and wisdom. His instruction enables us to live well in His world. In verse 3, Moses describes the blessed place Israel is headed to. He says it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Or we could translate it oozing with milk and honey. That might not be a picture that gets us excited with anticipation, but it symbolizes prosperity. The place is good. It's filled with good things. And it's the place God has promised Israel. They're not being told to earn it. They're being told how to enjoy it. And the key to that enjoyment is how they respond to the statement in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That statement is short, only six words in Hebrew, and yet it was the center of Old Testament religion. Even today, Jews will recite those words at least twice every day. It's known as the Shema. And in Mark's gospel, when Jesus was asked of all the commandments, which is the most important, Jesus replied, first of all, not with a commandment at all, but with this statement. So what is it about this that's so significant? Because we might be forgiven for thinking it's not really saying anything significant at all. And we're not helped by the fact that it's a little bit hard to translate this phrase. You can see that if you look at the bottom of the page in your NIV. There's a footnote giving you three other possible translations of the verse. But in fact, whatever way this is translated, its significance is the same. It gives the reason for the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And here's why you shall not. Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Meaning, he is unique. He stands alone. There's no other God worthy of worship because the Lord our God is the one and only. He doesn't exist in many forms. He's not Baal. He's not Ashtoreth. He's not Molech or any of the other supposed gods people worshipped at this time. In today's terms, he's not Krishna. He's not the God of the Koran. Those aren't all manifestations of some part of God, as if you could put them all together and get the full package. They're not God at all. The Lord is one. He alone 
is God. As the song says, he has no rival, he has no equal. And he is all we need. He is the all-sufficient one. He has the power to deliver his people and provide for his people. He is totally God. And so on our part, the only reasonable response to him is total love. Loving him totally is not over the top. It's the only way to love the totally worthy one. Loving the Lord our God completely is not only the greatest commandment, it's the only sensible thing to do. And in fact, it is our greatest privilege. Verse 5 describes what that total love for the Lord looks like. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's a call to love him at the core of who we are. All your heart and all your soul. And to love him with all our abilities and resources. All your strength. That's not just about your physical strength. It includes your financial strength. Your social influence. And the stuff that you own. This is about your whole self your entire person, and all that's yours. Love God by putting all of it to work for Him. Make Him first in your heart and your head and your daily efforts and priorities. And that total love is then illustrated in verses 6 to 9. This is what it looks like. It means the Lord's Word will be central to our lives. His instruction will rule in our lives. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them in your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The message is, it is simply impossible to love God while ignoring what he says. So if we love him, our lives will revolve around what he says. That means we'll read his word, but we'll also take what we read to heart. And it will affect our daily conversation and our daily decisions. We'll be more concerned that our children know God's word than that they know anything else. After all, how will our children ever love him if they've never been introduced to him and been shown the goodness and the wisdom of his word? One of the saddest statements in the Bible is in Judges chapter 2. The writer of Judges tells us, a generation grew up in Israel who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How could that have happened? 
It happened because their parents couldn't be bothered to tell them about the Lord and what he'd done for Israel. And you'll notice Moses doesn't say in verse 7, leave it to the Sunday school teachers to impress God's instruction on your children. It doesn't say leave it to the leaders of discoverers or 116 or youth discipleship. No, dad and mom, you make God's instruction part of the daily routines of your family life. Sunday school and the other church groups will support you, but it's your responsibility. And there are lots of resources where the hard work has already been done for you. All you have to do is use them. Just ask and we can point you to those. And just on a side point here, if you're hoping to get married and have children someday, how could you possibly obey this unless you marry a Christian who will work with you on this? Because they too love the Lord. How could you possibly do this if you marry a non-Christian? Because no non-Christian will have this as a priority. They won't. They might just about tolerate a little bit of God in the family. But they will not support God being at the center of the family. Like it's described here. Marry someone who shares this commitment. Not someone who's going to resist it and obstruct it. You may be thinking, though, as you read these verses, does the Lord not know we have jobs to go to and homework to do and exams to prepare for and nappies to change and housework to keep up with and hospital appointments to go to? Of course he does. These Israelites would mostly be farmers. And farming has always been hard work. It's the kind of work that's never really finished. Of course the Lord knows we have other things to do in life. Very few people will ever be monks or nuns. In fact, it's questionable whether anyone should ever be a monk or a nun. This total love of the Lord is not for specialists who can opt out of the rest of life. Not at all. This is for normal people who are living normal, topsy-turvy, often exhausting lives. These verses are not calling us to abandon life. They're calling us to carry the Lord's instruction with us into all the complexities of normal life and put God's instruction to work in those complexities. God's instruction is relevant to how you deal with your nasty neighbor and your rotten relatives and your lazy staff and your unreasonable boss and your financial headaches and your sexual desires. And your fears about your exams and your hospital appointments. 
And God's instruction is relevant to all the other stuff as well. We show total love for the Lord by taking his instruction to heart and then bringing it to bear on all the bits and pieces of our lives. That's the real significance of verses 8 and 9. The Jewish people have interpreted these verses literally. And so they do have bits of scripture in little boxes that strap around their heads and their hands. They do have bits of scripture in little boxes beside the doors of their houses. And I'm sure there's something to be said for that. Maybe the equivalent for us would be texts of scripture on our walls or as the background on our phone. But really, the main point of verses 8 and 9 is figurative. It's metaphorical. Make God's instruction so central and so significant in your life, it's like you have it tied to your forehead and written on your doorframe. Make it so significant in your life that you're always being directed by it. You never take a holiday from God's instruction. There's no room in your house where God's instruction doesn't apply. And you certainly don't consider God's instruction just a Sunday thing. It's directing you. It's influencing you every waking moment wherever you are. That's what total love for the Lord looks like. You'll notice these verses don't mention the size of our giving to the church. They don't mention how well we can talk or how impressively we can pray or how emotional we get during worship times. No, they tell us the key to loving God is listening to Him and then letting His Word be the lamp for our feet and the light on our path all the time. And the opposite of that is forgetfulness, an offensive response to God's blessing. As Moses speaks to these Israelites, they can look over Moses' shoulder and see the land of Canaan, just across the river, the land which the Lord has promised to give them. And here in verse 10, Moses warns the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Israel is going to receive blessing. They're going to acquire land, cities, houses, furnishings, and crops that are all gifts from the Lord. But the tragedy is that God's wonderful gifts can lead to God himself being forgotten. 
comfortable surroundings and full bellies can become so distracting to us, they end up becoming the focus of our love instead of God. That's why one preacher talks about God's people being afflicted with affluence. And what he means is, the very prosperity and plenty that come to us as blessings from God, those things can become an affliction because we tend to forget God in the midst of those blessings. And the majority of us here are afflicted with affluence. We have an abundant supply of money, goods, or property. That's what affluence is. And even if we're very far down the scale of that by this country's standards, that still makes us very near the top of the scale in worldwide terms. It does. Jesus spoke about asking God for our daily bread. But when was the last time you woke up in the morning truly not knowing where that day's bread was going to come from? Maybe you have been in that situation, but the majority of us have not. And yet a good portion of the world's population really does live that way. With daily uncertainty about their daily bread. And that means all of us here this morning are probably afflicted with some degree of affluence. As I said, maybe you're the exception, but most of us aren't. And all our affluence, whatever form it takes and however much of it we have, all of it is God's gift to us. It's not a bad thing, it's not sinful. It's not something to be ashamed of. But as well as being a good thing, it represents a great danger to you and me. Because we all have the tendency to love God's gifts instead of him. That's what Moses is warning the people about here. And we need the warning too. Now it's not that we'd ever say I love the gifts and not God. Of course we'd never say that. But in practice, that can be true. In our prosperity, we forget God. No, we don't forget that he exists. But we forget him in that we do not do what verses 5 to 9 have called us to do. We do not give him our total love. And in the context of what Moses is saying here, forgetting God doesn't mean denying him outright. It means sidelining him in our hearts and in our actions. It's less than total love for him. In our prosperity, we can become thankless instead of thankful. We can become careless instead of careful in terms of listening to God and obeying Him. 
So in verse 13, Moses says to Israel, fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. In Canaan, across the river, no one was going to try and stop Israel worshiping the Lord. But they would encourage Israel to worship other things alongside the Lord. To serve other gods as well as the Lord. Which is breaking the first commandment. In the first commandment, God did not say, I must be top of your list of gods. I must be the main thing you worship and live for. No, he said, you shall have no other gods besides me. And that becomes a real challenge when we are afflicted with affluence. Because we can so easily end up with a list of things we worship. Our own league table of things that get our devotion. And God so easily slides down the league. Not that we'd relegate him completely, but is he top of the league? Is he there in a class by himself? Really? Truly? That's a more awkward question for all of us. But we have to force ourselves to examine our hearts on this. Because letting God be demoted in our lives is offensive. It's an offense against what God's greatness deserves. It's unacceptable. That's made clear in verses 15 to 19, where we hear again about God's jealousy. It's come up in previous chapters. It's God's appropriate refusal to let his people invite other lovers into the relationship. God and his people are to have an exclusive relationship. And when his people take other lovers, Moses says they're testing God. And Israel knows from past experience, testing God is a bad idea. Going doggedly on with a life of divided loyalty leads in the end to destruction. The first commandment is not negotiable. Total love for the Lord is the only reasonable and acceptable response to him. And so you and I then have to ask ourselves, what hope do we have? What hope do any of us have? The Israelites are being challenged about how they must live when they cross the river. There's still a choice for them to make, to love the Lord with total love. But you and I are already in the thick of it. We're not waiting to get started with this. If life is a marathon, you and I are already miles into it. 
And can any of us say we have been loving the Lord with total love? Can any of us say we are above forgetfulness? That our prosperity never distracts us from the one who gave it all to us? Don't we have to agree with what Paul said in the New Testament? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? None of us measure up. But here's the beauty of this passage. Ultimately, this passage points us to the love that saves us. And it is not our love for God. It's his love for us. God's love is the love that saves us. Look at verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? The boy is asking his dad or his mom, what's all this about? Why do we pay attention to these commands? Why do we take them so seriously? And we might expect the answer to be, well, son, we take them seriously because our obedience is what saves us. But look at the actual answer in verse 21. Why do we take these commands so seriously? Because we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. So when your son or daughter asks, why do we take these commands seriously? The answer starts with the people's helplessness, their great need. We were slaves in Egypt. And then comes the work of God's rescue. He brought us out of Egypt. Then the things God has promised, the good gifts he has ahead of his people. And then... And only then does the answer mention the commands that were asked about in verse 20. They don't come into the picture until verses 24 and 25. What's the significance of that? The significance is our hope rests on what God has done for us. Our hope rests on God's love for us, not on our love for him. That was true for these Israelites as they looked back to God's saving love shown at the Exodus. And it's true for you and me today as we look back to his saving love shown at the cross. 
He loved us. He saved us. And now we respond to his salvation by seeking to give our total love to him. We commit to turning away from our forgetfulness and turning back to him. That is the context for Moses' comments in verses 24 and 25, where the people's obedience finally comes into the picture. The fact that God's love has come first, that helps us understand the statement at the end of verse 25. If we are careful to obey, that will be our righteousness. It does not mean that will earn our righteousness. It means that will display our righteousness. Our obedience will identify us as men and women who belong to the righteous God who saved us. In chapter 9, Moses is going to say to the people, it is not because of your righteousness that God blesses you. In fact, Moses is never too complimentary about the people's righteousness. And the point here, too, is that God is the righteous one. And as his saved people, we are called to pursue righteousness. He didn't save us and bless us because we were righteous. So you and I can read Deuteronomy chapter 6 without being crushed by it. Because the love that saves us is God's love for us not our love for him. Eugene Peterson says, we are the recipients and participants of salvation, not its makers and shapers. We are the recipients and participants of salvation, not its makers and shapers. In other words, salvation is a gift we receive. And then we're called to participate in what God is doing. That happens as we get serious about loving him with all our heart and soul and strength. Listening to his word carefully. Making it the central voice in our lives. The voice that directs all our paths all our choices, all our attitudes. We participate in what God is doing when we refuse to give in to the forgetfulness that comes with prosperity. And all of this is not only the greatest commandment, it is the greatest privilege. What greater privilege could there be than to give ourselves to loving this altogether worthy God who has loved us first. We noticed in the last section of this passage, the first thing Israel was to remember was God's salvation. The first story the father was to tell his son was the story of the Exodus. 
Obedience made sense in the light of the Exodus. When the son grasped the wonder of God's salvation, then obedience would be the only reasonable thing to do. And it would be a joy. And it's the same for us. Remembering God's salvation makes obedience natural and joyful for us. That's why Jesus left us a meal that retells the story of our salvation. Jesus took the Jewish Passover meal, the meal that commemorated the Exodus, and he updated it. He turned it into a meal commemorating his death, the salvation he brought. And Jesus told us to celebrate this meal until he comes. And so we keep doing this over and over again. We eat the bread and we eat the wine. And we do it so we'll remember God's love is the love that saves us. And then we get up from the table and we go out the doors with new motivation to love this God who has loved us first. So we are going to share this meal now. And as our servers come and begin to serve the bread, let's just use this time to personally remember the work of love that's represented here in the bread and the wine. Jesus said they represent his body broken for our salvation and his blood poured out for our salvation. If you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, then please join us by taking the bread and then the wine. But if you're still trying to save yourself somehow by being good enough for God, or if the things I've been saying just aren't clear to you yet, then please just let the bread and the wine pass you by today. As the bread is served, we'll keep it and then once everyone has been served, we'll eat together.
Let's eat together and remember the love that saves us. And as you're served the wine again, we'll keep the cup and drink it together. Let's drink together and give thanks for the love that saves us. Lord God, we give you thanks for this great salvation, perfectly accomplished in Christ. And we give you thanks for the privilege we have of responding to you with love. Help us to do that. Help us listen ever more carefully to your instruction all the time. Help us be ever more careful to obey your instruction all the time. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. And we pray that in the power of your spirit, we will grow in our love for you. Amen.
We're going to respond together now in song as we follow the musicians out through these doors and again picking up a song sheet as you leave. I will go round to the back and the Sunday school will be joining us while we're there. <laughs>